Luke chapter 2, I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version. Luke chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 7. Here's what it says. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while some dude named Quirinius, poor guy with his name, was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. This is making sure everyone is where they are from. They know um, that the government knows where their homes are so that they can get a nice tax. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee. We know this guy, Joseph, the stepdad of Jesus, went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the household and lineage of David. But he went there, verse 5 says, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Probably not what a woman in her third trimester is hoping to do. How you feeling, honey? Okay, good. Th- you're about to pop. Let's get on a donkey and go for a journey. She's, she's a pretty incredible woman. Look at verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. These are days that have been set from eternity past. Verse 7 says, And she brought forth her firstborn son. It's amazing. No doctors. No midwives, no OBG thingies. Um, there's no hospital here. There's no, there's no urgent care. There's just, it says, what an incredible woman. Some people believe 15, maybe 14 years old, Mary. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. She's the one doing this. Because there was no room for them in the end, in the end, I want to teach this morning from this topic, and it's the first Christmas, the first Christmas. That's what we have here in this text, man. We, we see the first Christmas. I was thinking, man, this is a great way for us to start this holiday season. It's by looking into this ultimate question, which is what is Christmas really all about? And I know this is not a new concept because every Christmas movie to some extent, is trying to, you know, kind of the punchline of every Christmas movie nowadays is answering this. So whether it's Cindy Lou Who with the Grinch trying to figure it out, where are you Christmas? Why can't I find you? That song that you all love? Judah hates it when I sing that. Um, or, or the classic Charlie Brown, where Linus goes up to Charlie Brown and says, Charlie Brown, the true meaning of Christmas is right there. And where does he quote from? He quotes from right here in Luke Chapter 2. Now, I absolutely love Christmas. I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag there. There's no shame for my love for this holiday. Anybody else proud to say that? I love this holiday. Like, everything about it. The food, the music, the decorations, the giving and receiving gifts. Uh, There's just something about the Christmas season that's so awesome. But it's important for us as we're entering into the season as a church to get back to this question. What is this holiday all about? What is it all about? Now, there's a principle when it comes to studying the Bible that I think is also true for life, but it's a principle that is called the law of first mention. You ever heard of this? The law of first mention. And this is a way to study, a principle to to kind of study your Bible by. Anytime you're trying to get to know something, anytime you're really trying to dive into and learn about a topic, maybe it's marriage or family or government or whatever fun hobby you have for that week, you know, Um, it's often best to look for when was this first mentioned 
in the Bible. It's the law of first mention. So if you want to learn a little bit about marriage, what is, what is the covenant of marriage? You go to Genesis 1, and you see the first time God brought Adam, his wife Eve, and they became one flesh. You learn, in fact, a lot. There's a lot of first mentions in the book of Genesis because it's the book of beginnings. So you have the first mention of family, of sin, of, of government, of civilization. You have the first mention of murder. I mean, all these different things. But it's this great principle to live by even, I think, in life. You know, if you're trying to investigate something, you often don't, to get to really know something, you, you often shouldn't look at what it's become, right? You often go back to the source. Like, so if, if you, like me, are a kind of a closet hip-hop fan, but you can't say that in public because you're a pastor, um, if you want to get to know what hip-hop is like, I would discourage you from listening to the radio today. I would encourage you to do some investigation, see kind of the roots of what this came out of, the culture that this kind of stuff came out of, or surfing, for example, kind of the surf and skate culture that I myself grew up in that has just found its way straight into the mainstream. And I, there's kids everywhere wearing these Thrasher shirts. I'm like, do you even know what you're wearing right now? All right. Oh my gosh. Justin Bieber wore it, you know? It's like, yeah, I know. Um, now, if you really want to know the heart of something, if you want to know something for as authentic as it is, you shouldn't look at what it's become. You should go back to the beginning. You should go to the inception, its origin. It's at its origin that man hasn't had the tendency and the opportunity yet to make it what it wasn't supposed to be. Are you with me? We could do that with everything. We certainly have the tendency to do this with Christianity, don't we? We kind of get our fingerprints all over what God's doing. And we, we try to make it what we like in our preferences. And this is what I think church and community and life and following Jesus should look like. And I'm not saying this from a, you know, though I am up on this platform, I want you to understand that there's a leveled position that I have in this idea, something that God has been really drilling into me lately. Um, even with our church, where we're at right now, we're in a really, I think, a cool season. I think the Lord is building some things because he wants to do some things in our church. I believe that. I believe he's calling us to be kind of patient right now for a work he's wanting to do. And it's a cool season we're in. You know, we launched this church in April, and it was an awesome, awesome launch seeing what, what God was doing. I really believe that, that as God has been working in our church, he's been faithful to just minister with his spirit. I just felt that. Um, from the very beginning, this was our heart. Our heart was, man, what we can do doesn't compare to what God can do. So let's not waste time doing what we can do. Let's get out of the way as much as possible so that Jesus can have his way and do his work in his church. That's a great spot for an amen. Just want to throw that out there, okay? You'll have another opportunity coming here. No. Um, but I believe that. I believe that's, that was in our heart. And here's what God spoke to me the other day. He said, Andrew, you've gotten far from that. You've gotten far from that. And then I started to remember these core values that, that the Lord gave us when we started this church. And these core values, when they, when they, you know, core values are great when you're like projecting them. Like, oh, we're spirit-filled and we're, you know, we're prayer-driven and we're all these things. But really what you're saying is we're not going to naturally be these things. So let's say that we want to be these things so that we can be accountable to these things. And over time, what God's begun to do in my heart, especially this week, is I've just felt God say, Andrew... Go back to the beginning of what I did in Solus Church. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. I don't want to be caught up in earthly busyness. I want to be about heavenly business. Amen? 
And so that's what God's been calling me back to recently. Just had to take a moment to just confess that and say, man, this is what God I feel like is doing right now in our church. He's causing us to get off our feet and get back on our knees, man. And it starts for me, man. For me, it started by God, again, taking me back to the beginning before the tendency of the flesh could get in the way of the spirit. Because what begins in the spirit can very quickly continue in the flesh. It's so subtle. So we got to go back, I think, to the beginning. And that's, you know, that's what we have here with Luke 2. Because, come on, the same is true with Christmas, right? We have made Christmas all sorts of things that it never was. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the things that we made it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a guilty consumer in this business here. All right, I spent my money on my Christmas lights, okay? I got eggnog in my fridge right now at home. But there's no doubt, there's no doubt that we can so miss the point of what is probably the most central moment in the history of the world. So what is Christmas really all about? That's what we have here in Luke 2. We have what we, we called already the first Christmas, the law of first mention. Let's see Christmas here in its purest form. This is Christmas before the lights, before Mariah Carey, before Santa, before any of that. And it's interesting to see who this birth of Jesus, the first Christmas. It's interesting to see the first recipients of Christmas. As we continue here in Luke 2, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to see the first almost guests that are invited to the first ever Christmas party. So Luke 2 verse 8, let's look at that. It says this, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Pause there. So these are the guys that are going to get the first Christmas story. They're shepherds. And it's coincidental enough, we just finished our series in Psalm 23, looking at the good shepherd. That's, I think we're just going to do shepherds every weekend from here on out. But, but here we have these shepherds keeping their, their flock by night. These are unlikely characters to be the first recipient. We're going to see these guys are kind of at the bottom of the societal ladder. But here's what happens. It says, behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. They're in the flock keeping watch by night, there's no lights, there's no street lights, um, there's just some shepherds and sheep, and an angel of the Lord, verse 9, stood around them, stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. You and I would be too, we would. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all People, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. We just read about this baby being born, but we get a little bit more insight. Here's what Christmas is about. This baby that was born, that Mary brought forth, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior Christ Lord. Uh, first, if you're taking note, the first thing that we see about the first Christmas is, number one, write this down. We see that the first Christmas in its purest form was, number one, a message to be heard. It was a message to be heard. That's what we see happen right after the birth of Christ, the first Christmas. We have this incident provoke a messenger, a heralding angel, harking and heralding. The angels are singing. That's what's going on here. They're heralding angels. They're declaring a message, and they bring this message in the night with great glory to a couple of shepherds, and these shepherds, rightly so, were freaked out. It says that they were afraid in the, in the original language. They were, I like it's classic old King James language. They were sore afraid. Like, have you ever been so scared that you're like, I'm sore. Like, you just work out. You're like, no, I'm just terrified, you know. That's how scared these dudes were. They were sore afraid. 
And rightly so. I mean, this is the common reaction. Any, anytime anybody, you know, sees an angel in person, uh, certainly you read in Hebrews, it talks, there's this really peculiar verse in Hebrews that says that in your lifetime you may actually entertain angels. You ever read that and not even know it? And you've heard, I've heard all sorts of stories. Some guy came out of nowhere, changed my tire, and disappeared. I mean, there's stuff that happens, you know. It's for sure. The Bible says it. But most of the time that you see visitations from angels, it's not like, oh, maybe he's an angel. It's like, I'm going to die right now. That's an angel. This angel, the, and not just this angel, the glory of the Lord shines around them. They're terrified. They're terrified. It's not just the sight of this just beast of, a, of an insane creature, the angel standing before them, but it says the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shone around them. I think that's what they were really afraid of. This is something else we see in Scripture and, and throughout history. Anytime someone has had some sort of encounter with what's called the glory of God, in, in Hebrew it's kabod, it means weight, it means, uh, some have called it, it's the, it's the very beauty of God emanating from his person, and when you encounter that, there's weight to it, it's glorious, it's kabod, it's heavy. You ever felt that? You ever felt like God's working at your life and it doesn't always provoke like, awesome, God's at work. Sometimes it's just like, a weight, right? It's just like God's at work in my life, and I actually don't have words. It's just kind of heavy. Well, here's a real-life visual vision of this glory, and what it causes them to do is to be afraid because that's what happens. That's what happens when people see who God is. The natural tendency before God is not to look at him and kind of look at yourself. This is what happened with Moses. This is what happened with John in the Isle of Patmos. This is person after person in the Bible. When you encounter the glory of who God is, what happens is you start to get this humbling realization of who you're not. It's like standing before the Grand Canyon and you're like, I'm small. And what the glory of God often does is it displays the holiness of God. And what happens is that we fall down on our face in holy terror because we're aware of how unholy we are. Greatly afraid. We should be. In fact, this is a proper posture. Some of us have never steeped our hearts to this rightful place because we live our lives comparing ourselves to each other's glory. You ever been in that game? God, I'm... I'm I'm this spiritual, I'm doing this well because I'm doing better than the person next to me. I read more, I pray more. It's kind of this, this comparison glory game. But we talked earlier, and we prayed earlier about there is no true glory but God's. And the place that we should all find ourselves is like these shepherds encountering who God is. When we see who God is, it will call us to see who we are, and we'll fall down our face in the same kind of holy terror. It's like we become aware of our sinful condition. Um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us as humans to know who we're not. Because so much of us are trying to find out who we are. We're trying to keep our, our esteem high and be good enough and be awesome enough. But there's this reality that Romans 3.23 teaches, which is that all humans, every single one of us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this is why the message of Christmas is what they go on to call good news. Because it's to that person that should be cowering in fear before a holy God that this heralding angel declares, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
Yeah, God is holy and you are not. And the natural response to being before a holy God is to experience your sinful condition and to fall down flat and stop comparing yourself to no one else, everyone else because it doesn't matter. Because before God, I see who I am. and I'm terrified at the reality of what this should cost me. And it's to that person in that place that the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be terrified by what you're seeing right now. And why is that? The reason is because there is born to you, verse 11, this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the message of Christmas. We should be afraid, but we are commanded not to be afraid because God has sent a Savior. He sent a Savior. This is amazing. This, this is what God sent. This is what God promised. He's a Savior, first and foremost, God didn't send a politician. If he knew that the political system was our biggest problem, he would have sent a politician. God didn't send a primarily and singularly just a physical healer. Uh, God knew that if our, you know, he knew that if our biggest issue was our physical ailments, he would have just sent a physical, a physical healer, a doctor. God didn't send this high royal figure. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows that what we most desperately needed was a savior. So Jesus comes, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's our hope. That's our only hope, that this Savior who was to be born would live the holy life that we failed to live. And this Savior would willingly go, go to a cross, and this is how he would save us. He would trade places with us. Knowing that sinners could never enter the presence of a holy God. So the Bible says that this Savior, this child would grow to become Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, who would go willingly to a cross. And on that cross, he would become sin on your and my behalf. He would absorb all of our brokenness. He would take upon himself all of our sinfulness. He would take upon himself all that we realize we are not before God, right? He would take it all. He would absorb it all. Every last bit of it until his last breath, the Bible says, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So that he could look at us and declare us righteous. In theology, it's called double imputation. Double imputation. His righteousness is imputed to me. My unrighteousness is given to him. The greatest exchange known to man. He's a savior. This great hope that's announced. He is the Christ. He's the Christ. He's the promised, long-awaited Messiah. He's the one we've all been waiting for. He's the one every person in this room was created for. Mashiach in the Greek. The anointed one. The one who could do for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is make us right with God eternally. And he is the Lord. He is Koryos in the Greek. He is, uh, he is our ultimate master. As Bob Dylan said, you, you've got to serve someone. It's not if you're serving a master, it's have you found Jesus as your master. It's who's your master. Um, some of us go, I don't have a master. I'm, you know, I'm the captain of my own destiny. Well, yeah, you're your own master and you're your own slave. And you are only going to be limited to you as the Lord of your own life. There is no other Lord but Jesus, trust me. And I've, I've had to learn this time from time again because I'm really good at becoming the Lord of my own life on a daily basis. But the message of Christmas is don't be afraid. Despite who we are apart from God, a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Um, 
And I love the way that it says it specifically. It says that a Savior has been born to you. To you. Think about this. The shepherds, these are not like the religious elite of the day. These are just the blue-collar workers outside of the city, just making a living for their family. They're not the ones that, would, that anyone in that culture would have expected this first Christmas message to come to. They were sort of culturally the undeserving, and this is usually how God works. God loves to flip our cultural things upside down to make us look as foolish as we really are. And so he often looks for the ones that culture is pushing aside, and he pursues that one. He says, watch this. I'll manifest my glory in how I change this life, and everyone will have to shut up. It's pretty awesome. This is how he works. In fact, in that culture, a shepherd, they, didn't even, they, they were not even able to represent or testify in court. Think about that. God goes, that's the first person I'll share about my Christmas story with. Someone who's not even able to testify in the modern court of law. And we see Jesus even do this after he rises, right? Who does he appear to first? To women. Showing Jesus has that value of women as well. And he says, listen, these are also in your culture two people that won't be able to testify in your systems courts. And these are the ones that God comes to. It says, to you a Savior is born. I think it's really important to really evaluate whether or not you've ever personally received that. Like everyone in this room, I think by now, could have done the Bible study I just gave and tell us what Christmas is really all about. But have you had that light go on where you've realized that Jesus was born as a Savior for you? Like for you. We know that unto us a child is given, but I love the way the angel says it. Yeah, it's to us, but it's only to us if it's first to you. It's got to be to you. It's got to be personalized. Now, when it is, did you notice what she said about it? Oh, I said she. It's probably Gabriel. He. My bad, Gabriel. All right. All right. My bad. All right. Just apologize to an angel. That was pretty cool. Okay, verse 10. It says that this message, I love this, is a message of good news, of great joy for all people. Good news of great joy for all people. This will do a lot to change our hearts. To recognize first that the message of Christmas is good news. And this is hard for us. We live in a society where we're so used to bad news that we, we're kind of like, you're, are you like me? You're like kind of slow to like fully trust in and be excited about good news. And so when someone comes, you're like, you're like, I got good news. And then they usually say, what do you want first? The good news or the bad news? And that's the reality of, of our world. That, that's what sin does to what God created. There's disappointment around every corner. But the message of Jesus is good news without a trace of bad news. It's news to be trusted in. It's news to be received. It's news to be rejoiced over. That's what you do when the good news is true. You rejoice. I mean, this is what I'm always asking God to enlighten my faith, and one of the hardest things for any human being to truly do is believe in the truth of the gospel. We might know the facts of the gospel. We might know that it's good news. You can come up here and teach about how it's good news, but the gospel is only as good as it's true, right? It's only as good as it's true. Jesus is only as, as powerful as he's alive, and if that is true, if that is true, what that should do to a heart is cause you to rejoice. Like, Wow. Sometimes it's like the gospel gets heard by us so much that though it's good news, it can become old news, right? 
But Lord, may your gospel be fresh, hot off the press, good news to me every day that despite me being the sinner that I am, you sent Jesus to be a savior to save me. Thank you for that good news. And ultimately, God, thank you that it's true, that it's true. That was your second chance for amen. It's okay. We're going to keep going. It's all right. We'll get there, okay? He's a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's good news of great joy. And man, I love that it's for all people. All people. First, this, doesn't this counteract our prejudices? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, all people. But I'm sure like in the Greek, it's like, except, you know, it's a little asterisk. Those kind of, you know, that political party. We know we know them. It actually in the Greek means some people or most people. There's no questioning the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ, in fact, the Bible actually does say that the, that, that the Christian message of salvation through Jesus, to be forgiven of your sins and made right with God, the Bible does quantify who it's for. There is a certain kind of person that it's for. And John 3.16 tells us it's for whosoever. Who? Whosoever. What about those people? Are they a whosoever? Yeah, yeah. We can kind of be like, you ever seen the Grinch? Come on, we can be like, oh, well, the Grinch, he's, well, they're not a whosoever, they're a what? They're a whatsoever. They're a, why, why are they a whatsoever? Well, the way that they, you know, the, like the, this belief they have, and, or, or maybe they struggle to have faith in God, or they really struggle with this sin. So I know it's like all people except people that struggle with this sin, you know. And all people means this, every single human being on the planet Earth, because they've all been made in the very image of God. And every person, despite their political party, for God so loved the world, that means God so loved Muslims, God so loved homosexuals, God so loved my neighbor, God so loved my uncle even. Like God so loved everyone, everyone that we tend to create these prejudices around and we go, yeah, but you gotta, you gotta behave to belong. You gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta kind of have, and this is not the message of Jesus. It's amazing how some Christians, because maybe they struggle with different things in life, that they get this theology that they somehow have become savable through their struggles. Well, you know, my these are mine. What are yours? Oh, work that out. Um, maybe come in January to Solace once you figure that out. We'll do the Christmas series without you. You know, like, and this is the message of Jesus, guys. The message of Jesus is that all people can be saved. Not because they have the ability to be saved, but because God has the ability to save. There we go. This is our testimony, isn't it? There's not one person in here that's going to get to heaven one day and go, yes, I did it. I made it. I got whew, exhausted, but hey, I'm here. I'm here. You don't get you to heaven. Jesus gets you to heaven. You don't get your neighbor to heaven. Jesus gets your neighbor to heaven. All people, all people. Great news, good news of great joy for all people. That's what Christmas is. The first Christmas we see was a message to be heard. So the question here is, have you heard? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. How can I be right with God and be saved? You just heard the message of the gospel. Now put faith in it. Trust in it. Even right now, right now, I mean, we're not going to do an altar call or some kind of, you know, go to that spot. Look, right now, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? That he rose again to defeat your greatest enemy of death? Do you believe that Jesus, he's the one that saves you, that can forgive you of your sins? That he's the savior that's been born to you? And that if you trust in him, you will be saved? you believe that? You're saved. Good news. 
It's not faith plus go forward, faith plus do a backflip, faith plus fast, you know. It's faith. We're made right with God. That's good news. Secondly, let's look at this next thing here. It says this, that after these shepherds heard this message of good news, of great joy for all people, it says this. I think this is so cool in verse 12. It says, and this will be the sign to you, verse 12. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. So hearing it probably should have been enough. Like if you see an angel of the Lord and they're like, hey, what's up? I'm a herald, and I'm here to preach the gospel to you. you yeah, I know you're terrified. You're, you are a sinner. But here's the good news. Jesus was just born, and he's the Savior. And if you place your faith and trust in him, you can be made right with God, and you can be saved and forgiven of all your sins, no matter who you are. Okay, And they're like, okay. And they go, now come check it out. That's literally what they say. Like, it would have been enough to go, so I saw an angel, and this is what I heard. But I love this. I love the invitation to come investigate what they're hearing. This is going to be a sign to you. You're going to, now, now, you've engaged your ears. Now engage your eyes. I want you to come see this. You're going to see. Here's a sign. You're going to see a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. What you just heard about this Savior, you're going to see him with your eyes. Now check out this scene, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now I know one angel told the shepherds not to be afraid. Imagine that one angel now turns to a symphony of a multitude of angels. Like this, this makes, just imagine the scene. It, in my mind, it makes like the Super Bowl halftime show look like a middle school talent show. Imagine this. A multi, can you imagine the sounds? Can you imagine the sights? It says in verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, like fade to black as gangster as angels can be. In fact, the word they're gone away literally means they gradually departed. In my mind's eye, I just see like sections like da, 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 you know, like I just see it happening with such order and beauty and majesty. And all along these guys are like, I'm just going to go shepherd tonight. And it starts by this great interruption of hearing this, this great news. But remember, there is this invitation from the angels. It's not just what you hear. What you hear must also be seen with your eyes. So it says in verse 15 that it was when those angels went away that the shepherds said to one another, this was a wise thing to say, let us now go to Bethlehem, Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass. Let's check this out. Which the Lord has made known to us. And so rightly so, verse 16 says, so what did they do? They did the right thing. They came with haste. I'm sure they just <laughs> left those poor little sheep to die. I would have done the same thing. Okay, it makes me lie down. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not the good shepherd. See you guys, you know, and just took off. We got to go check this thing out. You know, like head sheep, you know, Chancho, watch the rest of the group, okay? I don't know why the head sheep's name is Chancho. It just felt right, okay? So Chancho's there with the flock, and the shepherds are going, we got to go check this thing out. we got to see what we just heard about. And so it says in verse 16, as they came with haste, they, this is huge, they found Mary and Joseph. They found what they were looking for, as will everyone who seeks. You seek Jesus, you will find him if you search for him with all your heart. He's waiting to be found by us. And they did. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Wow. Number two, write this down. The first Christmas was more than just a message to be heard. It was also a savior to behold. 
to behold. I love that this is who God is. I love that what God says to you and me about the claims that he makes about who he is and what he's done for us, I love that when God says these things to us, he doesn't just say, take my word for it. Now he does. We trust in his word. But you know what he does after speaking such great news over our lives? He invites us to behold it for all that it is. To see it. To see it. To use our eyes. It's, it's this investigative posture going, all right, Lord, this is what you've said, but I, I really want to see it. I want to see it. This is my life verse, actually. Some of you know this. I've shared this. Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. I, I grew up in a, in a household where I was told about God. Anybody else? You heard of the gospel growing up? There's a difference between growing up in a household and hearing about God and beholding Jesus with your eyes. There's a big difference. Seeing God. My life was changed when I heard a, a preacher uh, teach about this concept that if you seek God, if you taste of him, if you, just, if you give him your heart, if you give him the attention, he will not disappoint you and he will reveal himself to you. I took that preacher up on that offer and my life's been different ever since in the fact that my hope is different, that I've been saved. And it was through this call to investigate God, which for some of us is such a foreign thing to us because our understanding of God is God just says, don't think, just believe. We call it blind faith. Now, the Bible does say that we walk by faith and not by sight. The scripture tells us that God is invisible. But God also is a God who can be seen. Despite his invisibility, God, the Bible teaches, has made himself known. This is the, this is the best thing of all. And God hasn't left us like little you know, breadcrumb trails. You look around this world. If you have the eyes to see creation, you can see God. Anybody? If you really look, you're like, that might not have been an accident. And we, we don't do that with anything else. We don't come across some sort of beautiful artwork, the Mona Lisa, and go, you know, time plus chance, a bucket spilled over, and boom. Mona Lisa. And not only is the creation of this world vastly more complex than a beautiful painting, but the human brain, some have said that it's the most complex thing that we know of, the most complex thing in the, in the universe. And the Bible tells us that our minds, our lives, the Bible says that we were knit together by a designer, by a God who's, who's left his fingerprint on creation so that we can investigate and we can see him. And I just love this about God. I don't know where you're at with this thing. Maybe you're like, I'm just someone who comes to church and hears things, but I never see things. I don't know what people have told you. But Jesus wants you to see him. He wants you to taste and see that he is good with your own eyes. With your own eyes. Too many of us, we have never seen God. We've only heard of God because what we know about God has been drawn from other people's lenses. It's kind of like Instagram stories, isn't it? Look at their life. Look at their life. Look at what they saw. Cool wedding. I don't feel like seeing Andrew's pictures of 50, his 50 kids. You know, let me go, you know. 
And, and, and the, I think, you know, just how captivated we are with the, with the Instagram story, myself, and I like, to, I like to be able to broadcast what my kids are bringing joy to my life, so I like to post, but how many of us have a spiritual life that's kind of like our Instagram story life? And all we're ever doing is seeing what other people are seeing. We're hearing about what other people are seeing. What about what God wants to show you? What about what God wants to do in your life? Our lives are so short, guys. I don't want to live my life just hearing about how God moved in other people's lives. If God is who he says he is, I want to see him. I want to know him. And this is who God is. He makes himself known to us. Jesus made this claim about being in a relationship with him. He said, whoever has my commands and keeps him, keeps them, is the one who loves me. He's talking about a love relationship with him. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father, this beautiful union with God the Father and God the Son. And I too will love them and I will show myself to them. Enter into a loving relationship with Jesus and see if this comes to pass. I promise you it will. Test Jesus on this. If you are who you say you are, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to taste of you. I'm going to walk with you. And like Thomas, Jesus, I'm going to, from time to time, I'm going to say, let me see your hands, Jesus. I need, I need something. And I love what Jesus does. When Thomas says, Jesus, let me see your hands, Jesus doesn't go, no, Thomas. Believe what you've heard. Thomas asks for evidence, and Jesus gives him more evidence. Take a look. Look at my side, Thomas. Evidence. The person of Jesus will thrive under the most intense scrutiny. Trust me. Have you been on that own investigation for yourself? Maybe like the shepherds, we got to move from what we're hearing. I want to see Jesus. I want to behold the Savior. I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. I want to believe that God wants to reveal himself to me more than I want to see him. First Christmas was a savior to behold. We saw that it was also a message to be heard. And let's close out with this last one. The first Christmas was lastly a testimony. A testimony to be told. And this is central to what the Christian faith is all about. It's a message to be heard. It's an invitation to come see what you're hearing about. And Jesus is faithful and promises to reveal himself to you. And as you hear... And as you see, you develop what's called a testimony, a testimony of what you've heard and what you've seen. We, we see this with these shepherds, that verse 17 tells us that when they had seen him, look at verse 17, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. I love that these are the evangelists that heaven commissions, the first ones. Can't even testify in court. But Jesus goes, yeah, but they're going to represent me. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in their heart. Then the shepherds returned. Talk about a dynamic relationship with God that's come alive with these guys. Why? They returned glorifying and praising God for the things that they have heard and what? And seen. A message that they heard of good news that brings great joy to all people. A Savior has been born for you. That's good news to hear. True as well. And that message was seen. They saw with their eyes. They beheld their child. And everywhere they went, they just had to tell people about it. Because that's a testimony. That's a testimony. Like if you testify, what you're doing is you are, you're, you're witnessing. You're a witness about something that you've heard or that you've seen. 
You know, I saw he was there on this night. I know he said he was there, but you, you, you heard about it. You're, you saw it. You're giving your testimony. Like, I, you know, was a youth pastor for eight years, and so many different kinds of kids that go through youth ministry, kids that, like, have, are brand new to the Christian faith. Um, the hardest, the hardest are those that are just so close to Jesus that they can't see him. And, you know, they hear about him, but they, and so I had to, my heart was like, man, God, help me show these kids. Now that I'm pastoring adults, I see that there's some similarities there, actually, between humanity's tendency to think that a testimony is how bad I was and now how good I am. A testimony. What's your testimony? Uh, I mean, I don't really have a testimony, like, I never, I never, like, you know, like, did any of those. I never, like, killed anyone. Um, I was never a terrorist. Um, almost, but, um, you know, I never did, like, hard drugs. You know, I smoked a cigarette once. It's actually my testimony. Is the uh, Lord saved me from the smoke. Okay. Um, <laughs> testimony, testimony. Are these shepherds going around saying, this is how horrible we are, and now look how awesome we are? No, because that's not a testimony. That's called boasting. A testimony is what you've heard about the goodness of God's love for you and what you've seen about Jesus in your own life. When you gain that experience, when you gain Sight to see Jesus and ears to hear the gospel for you personally. Guess what? You have a testimony. And God wants to use your testimony. Did you know that? Well, I mean, I'm like a shepherd. I, I, nobody would even listen to what I have to say. Perfect. You're like the disciples. You're ordinary men. People looked on and they go, who are these guys? What are these guys talking about? Jesus rose from the dead, changed their lives. They, they perceive they're uneducated, untrained Men, but there was something about them that people looked on. They said, we've discounted you, but it's like there's a God in your life changing you. And it makes us go, who is this God? Tell me your testimony. I, I love in Acts 4 when these disciples, they were, you know, being bullied. It's like try to bully God. Good, good luck with that. And they're threatening Peter and John. You better not preach anymore. You better stop that whole preaching about Jesus Thing, and they go, okay, guys, let's just, I'm just going to be real with you, okay? Um, who do you think we should obey, you or God? And they're like, hmm, touche, God. And it says that they threatened them even more and said, you better not talk about him, and I love this. They said, but we can't but speak about what we've seen and heard. I can't, den listen, I don't have all the answers. I don't. You don't have all the answers. But I know what I've heard about Jesus. And I know what he's shown me. And so it's the apostle Paul who's standing before King Agrippa. And, and Paul goes, okay, here's, I'm going to give you my best apologetic, all right? King Agrippa goes, okay, tell me about your life. I want to know about you. And he doesn't go into, okay, well, the creation versus evolution myth. Let me try to break it. No. He says, I'm going to present to you, King Agrippa, my best apologetic. I'm going to give you my best defense and he goes I wanted nothing to do with God and my heart was hard towards the things of God but the love of Jesus has softened my heart Queen Grippa goes you almost convinced me to become a Christian 
convinced. Well, can God make a rock too big he can't lift? He changed my life. <laughs> I was blind, but now I see. I know what I've heard. I've known what I've seen. I, I just think for some of us, we need to realize that this is what God wants to use in our lives. That we would see this. That God wants to use what he's done in your life, what you've seen and heard, to change and transform other people's lives. Stop holding back your testimony. Declare, like these shepherds, we can't help but speak. And there's this special power that we have. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12 that in the face of our accuser, our enemy, the Bible says that we overcome him by the blood of Jesus and by the word of our testimony. That's how we overcome the enemy. Regardless of whether or not, let's start here, regardless of whether or not you feel, you feel like you're defeating the enemy, Jesus already has. He already has. Okay? And so his blood covers you. You're forgiven. Well, I don't feel covered. Jesus really died, though. So you overcome the enemy by the blood of Jesus. But may it also be by the word of our testimony, right? Because when Satan comes and he starts condemning you, you can plead the blood and you can preach the gospel, but you can also say, Satan, you can't take away from me what I've seen and heard. There's no stopping that. This is what we see with these unlikely characters, these men who weren't even allowed to testify in court, and they were the very ones that God used. They show us, with the first Christmas, they show us what Christmas was really meant to be all about. It's a message, it's a message to be heard. It's a savior to behold, and it's a testimony to be told as you see and you hear of him. And my prayer and hope for us is that is what Christmas is about for us this year, that we, everywhere we go, we can't help but talk about who Jesus is what I've heard about his goodness and what I've seen him do in my life. So we want to sing this song. We were singing it earlier. Would you stand with me? It's called Build My Life. And we're just going to sing this as a prayer, asking God to bring us back to that place where we're living in reality, in the reality of what he's showed us and what we've heard.